0: Welcome to another episode of Fresh From the Hill, inside stories of noteworthy Cornelians. My name is Lou Diamond, CEO of Thrive, host of Thrive Loud, class of 92, proud supporter of Big Red, and your host of today's episode. Today on Fresh From the Hill, we are bringing things to an unbelievable level because we are going to share a story of an incredible Cornelian who is still on the hill. But his experiences, I think, will resonate with everyone that's recently left, those that are there, and those that haven't been there in quite some time. We will be speaking today with Darnell Epps, a man whose journey has taken him from a maximum security prison to an Ivy League college at Cornell University. Dar- Darnell, how are you today?
1: How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, middle of finals like every other <laughs> Cornellian right now <laughs> who hasn't graduated, so... Just you know, looking forward to the summer vacation and connecting with family down in NYC once the semester's done.
0: So, so I got to tell you, well, we are recording this as you said, right during finals time here in May, and needless to say, it's a lovely, balmy forty degrees in Ithaca and uh, and raining. <laughs> yeah. So, so everyone's enjoying themselves trying to study, which is it's it's, it's I deal for studying for your final
1: exams.
0: (laughs) So our community here wants to hear this story. Um, I'll share with all the listeners that uh, this story came to me from our producer who shared with me your journey, Darnell, and I think it probably bodes well for you to share it. So where I really want to start is maybe um, in your high school years or growing up and exactly how that led to the path that. Took you in a different direction that you probably weren't planning on.
1: Well, quite a lengthy story, but I, 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 to give full context, I'll go into my early childhood years. I grew up in the housing projects in Brooklyn. Um, I was raised in a, initially in a two-parent household with my mother Denise and my father Daryl, and I had three brothers: one older brother Daryl, and um, my mother had Daryl and I at the ages of 16 and 17, respectively. So she was quite young when she had Daryl and I. And um, most of my early childhood, you know, everything was great. I went to a Catholic school. Um, It was, I mean, we lived in a neighborhood where, you know, a lot of our neighbors were working class or living below the poverty line. But uh, my father, he was a taxi cab driver, and he had mustered up enough savings to send us to a private school. We had, my brother and I were really like the only minority students uh, at the school, Resurrection.
0: And which school was this? Which private school were you at at that point?
1: Res- resurrection in Garrison Beach, Brooklyn.
0: Got it. Okay.
1: And it was a great experience, uh, but admittedly, like I never really seen myself as an academic, when I was young, I played a lot of sports. I'm a tall guy. I'm currently, you know, six six, and I weigh two hundred and sixty pounds. So I would play a lot. When I was young, I was tall and I was big, and I would play a lot of football uh, mm-hmm. and basketball. And I always seen like myself going to to college. If I ever went to college, it was through an athletic scholarship. But I never really seen myself as an academic, and you know during my early years, when I reached my early teens, uh, my parents, you know, had divorced. Um, And, you know, it was a quite, quite an experience for Daryl and I. And uh, we, my father, you know, by that time had no, could no longer afford to pay the tuition, which went up at resurrection. So we had to go to a New York City public school, Mm -hmm. which was kind of a shock. You know, I went from wearing a uniform to school and, being an altar boy to then going to a, a underperforming New York City public school at the 6th grade level and you know it was a different kind of experience from, from what I went through uh, in private school would see fights, would see you know somewhat the teachers were somewhat more indifferent and it was kind of a zero tolerance policy when it came to disciplining students so you see a lot of expulsions, a lot of suspensions. Mm -hmm. So it's very much a different environment. Um, Never really put a premium on what kind of clothes I wore to school. But when you go to public school, it's different, you know, wearing a uniform. So you want to fit in and you want to get the newest, you know, clothes. And, you know, my parents didn't have much at that time. Uh, My father, you know, again, he didn't have he wasn't earning enough at that time to really provide all four boys the type of, of clothing uh, that that we had wanted. So we, we made do it what we had. Uh, I still continued to play sports, but during the point in which my parents separated when I was about 14, uh, you know, my brother Daryl had already uh, went down the wrong path and found himself in a juvenile detention facility, you mm-hmm. know selling drugs right so he he was a uh, 15 years old but he 14 months older than me and he found himself serving 15 months in a juvenile uh, detention facility in Lincoln Hall yeah um, and it was kind of a you know a difficult thing for me to deal with because you know I always have my older brother there with me and then all of a sudden he's gone and my younger brother Jonathan he was Four years younger than me at the time, and then I had my younger brother Willie, who was eight years younger than me and so I was dealing with that, and eventually um I began during my when my parents separated my ultimately divorced, my mother took custody of my two younger brothers and that, and she moved to a better neighborhood in Brooklyn. She ended up becoming a New York City police officer actually. Okay. And, and moved out. And Daryl and I stayed with my father in the same Brooklyn housing project. And, you know, eventually, my freshman year in high school, I began to dra- not attend every class, even though I was playing on a football team. And ended up failing two majors and a minor, which made it so that I couldn't play football, right? And right. that was really the only thing that kind of connected me to school at that time, was sports. So when the coach gave me the option of continuing with uh, the team, but not playing until I worked on getting my grades up, I made the incredibly stupid decision of not going to school anymore. Right. Okay. And I dropped out in the 10th grade. I dropped out of school and I found myself uh, very much influenced by my surroundings. My high school was right across the street from the projects that I had lived in, in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. So I kind of thought it was too late for me to really do anything after a couple of years when Bob's, I'm 17, I'm 18, and I've seen, you know, friends of mine, uh, you know, some of whom I grew up with go off and go to community college, or some go to, uh, you know, state colleges. And I just thought like my my time had passed
0: right? know before you go there, what were you for those what were you doing when you dropped out? Were,
1: well, I began to smoke weed, I began to sell drugs, I began to do you know, find a way to make money. And my you know, this was something um that my um you know, my father he had battled uh, addiction, right? So right. it was you know, I witnessed it in the home which was one of the factors that, you know, kind of led to you know, the eventual divorce, uh, and it affected me in a way that, you know, I can't even begin to explain, but I felt like I, you know, I didn't really um, have the father there that I I had remembered when I went through, you know, private school, and he was the coach of the football teams. I kind of seen him, um, you know, go into a, a, a different, go on a different path, which was, Sort of, I guess, looking back now, maybe somewhat traumatizing, right? And I found support amongst the wrong crowd in in the neighborhood that I grew up in. And I was out smoking weed, um, you know, doing foolish stuff that kids in my neighborhood were doing at that time. And I found myself on the night that this incident happened uh, with my brother, um,
0: and, and your brother was back from juvenile, from juvenile detention yes. at this point. Uh, yeah. okay.
1: Yes. To to put it, give you more, a better time frame. Yeah. My brother had served 15 months in Lincoln Hall and he was, he had returned at the age of say 16 and he was accepted to John Jay college. He got a G D while he was, he earned a GED while he was in Lincoln Hall and he was considering going to college uh, at, at that young age. And, um, he ultimately decided not to he again went back into you know the streets Mm -hmm. um, and it didn't bode well for him and you know i was in it as well right so my my mother had two my two younger brothers and moved out of uh the right projects and
0: um so yeah so at this point your brother was out you were there why don't you share with the listeners the actual incident that it that took place so we can understand the actual facts that happened so they understand
1: well on the night in question my brother my brother's wife who was pregnant six months pregnant at the time was the victim of a sexual assault by a gang member in the neighborhood and my brother decided to confront this individual who was years older than us who had a reputation in the neighborhood for violence and my brother decided to confront him. My brother was armed with a weapon, and I, joined, I accompanied my brother there, and I myself was armed, and things escalated. They struggled over the weapon, and my brother was wounded, and the man was wounded as well, fatally. And I found myself before a judge in the Brooklyn Supreme Court looking at a potential life sentence and never getting out of prison. I was charged as an accessory. Uh, to to my brother's conduct, even though I didn't physically inflict any harm on anyone, I was still charged as an accomplice and and held liable for my brother's actions.
0: And what was the sentence at that particular time?
1: I was sentenced to 17 years, 17 and one half years to life. My brother took full responsibility for the offense. He pled guilty and said, you know, my younger brother had nothing to do with it. And, you know, he didn't know what my intent was. And the judge was sympathetic to my brother's claims and he wanted to give me a lesser sentence. And so he offered me 15 straight years, which was a determinate sentence. And it was for a a manslaughter charge. And I declined it because I felt like I didn't have any intent to cause harm to anyone at that particular moment. And I was just I was just at the scene with my brother, you know, uh, and I didn't really understand the legal implications of that. And so I declined the plea off and decided to go to trial. And typically, uh, when someone goes to trial, you face the maximum sentence. Like if you're convicted, right. the judge often gives you the maximum penalty, which in my case, if I was convicted on all counts, the weapons charge, as well as the, the accomplice liability charge, I would have been facing up to 40 years to life in prison. Um, and the judge decided not to give me the maximum sentence, imposed a sentence of 17 and one half years to life in prison, which was the same sentence that my brother received through a negotiated plea bargain. Right. So my brother was already sent to a maximum security prison. He was already at Five Points Correctional Facility in Romulus, New York at the time that I was being tried before. So,
0: so Darnell, at this particular point, how old were you and how old was your brother?
1: I was 20 years old and Darrell was 21 at the time.
0: Mm, okay. So um, and both sent away for and where, where were you sent to?
1: Well, I was sent to uh, Five Points Correctional Facility in Romulus, New York, which initially, um, it it was just built. It was a brand new correctional facility in New York State and they were trying to fill all these open bunks that they had. Often it's the case that relatives or co-defendants won't end up in the same correctional facility for security reasons. But in this situation, um, my brother, he was already there, and they were trying to send as many people as they could to Five Points Correctional Facility to fill up all these available beds. So I ended up, by chance, at that facility as well, which was kind of a bittersweet feeling. Um, You know, I was happy to see my brother, yet. We were both sad that we were serving such lengthy sentences.
0: Darnell, let me just ask this important question here. And I know it's a tough one to go back to. Give me your frame of mind and your perspective on life at that point when you were going in. Was it hatred? Was it frustration? Was it felt like there was no end in unfairness? What did you personally feel as this was um, taking place okay. to you?
1: I mean, for me, I felt tremendous sorrow. I felt sorrow for, you know, the victim's family. I felt sorrow for the tremendous pain that I caused to my own family. Um, And I felt, you know, uh, I felt, I was, you know, I felt like something had to change, that my outlook on life, my outlook on um, family, my outlook on, on community, I felt like, those things had to change. I knew something was flawed about my way of thinking. and I had to stop thinking about myself and start thinking about how my choices affect other people. Mm -hmm. And um, so I I started coming to this kind of understanding of what it is to be socially responsible incrementally through this process from being sentenced um, and then being transferred upstate. And I didn't know what would come of my future. I mean, it wasn't something I did to eventually be paroled or anything. I didn't even know that I would ever get out. I mean, when I was sentenced, only 3% of violent offenders um, made their first parole board in New York State, a very low percentage. I mean, I remember going up when I was first transferred upstate and I would see a lot of older inmates in the yard uh, discussing how they were denied parole five six times and each time parole would deny their release they would hold them for an, an additional two years beyond the minimum sentence so in most of these cases the inmates were serving sentences of say 15 to life 20 to life but yet would deny parole five or six times which could have extended their sentence by 10 or 12 years and it looked like some of them would ever get out so i see these older inmates aging in prison and You know, uh, and a lot of them had great disciplinary records. They had, you know, a college education at a time when college was quite common in New York state correctional facilities until the Clinton crime bill um, eliminated Pell grants for people who are incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So um, this was that older population uh, that I was seeing when I first entered the prison system at the age of 20 and I had never been in prison before. So it was, it was a scary thing, but yet, you know, not knowing what I would encounter, um, but yet I knew that I had to grow, right? And um, I had a brother there as well for support through this, through this situation.
0: D- Darnell, I'll ask this question. What year was this that this took place when you first arrived?
1: 2000, the year 2000.
0: Okay, so we're at 19 years ago when you arrived into into five points um, and you how as you started to recognize your road back on improvement and trying to think about others versus yourself obviously hitting the low point at that point who within the walls there helped you on that path who helped you with education who helped you um, learn and and change maybe not only your, your perspective, but also um, improve as a human being, and think about how you think of things differently when you were in five points.
1: Um, It was, there were multiple uh, people who contributed to my eventual growth. Um, There were the older inmates, bar Kim, um, you know, who I came upstate with uh, or Mark Thompson eventually, who came to Five Points, and others, inmates, older older inmates who, who had played a, a quite a role in helping to, you know, keep my brother and I from the criminogenic environment in prison. And we realized that we had options, right, that we didn't have to succumb to gangs, we didn't have to succumb to the negativity of prison, which you see, which you can find if you're looking for it. So we knew that there was a different experience, right, within the walls of the correctional facility, and you know that experience involved volunteerism, it involved youth counseling, it involved working, you know, with civilians, uh, and also furthering our education. I had teachers like Miss Benedetti, who my first year um, coming to Five Points uh, had seen, you know, I don't know some had had confidence in my ability to be a great student and helped encourage me to, you know, pursue my GED. And I earned my GED that first year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that helped build my confidence, right? Uh, I, I said I'd never really seen myself as an academic. I guess I started to really understand that I was smart, you know, and not just capable of playing sports,
0: Darnell. Yeah. yeah Darnell something interesting here that is is weird um, your experience growing up in Brooklyn where you had the opportunity to go to a private school growing up at one part obviously led you in one direction and that changed due to the the circumstance with your parents and obviously the environment and the choices out there were different and as you said so wisely you know you just that's the neighborhood and what you went to and chose to do at that point in time and whether those choices were not enough, but here you are inside the walls. And like you said, you can choose to go into any direction you want, good or bad. Um, What I guess was the impetus behind you to want to improve yourself versus keeping things, the status quo when you were there?
1: I mean, one thing I, you know, that was, that struck me deep was seeing the, the pain. When I was in the courtroom, when I walked, walked in the courtroom, and I would see a packed courtroom, and I would see families on both sides, feel, feeling pain. Uh, I would see the, the tears in my mother's eyes, the embarrassment that I caused her, the shame that I brought. She was a New York City police officer, but yet had to explain to her colleagues that her two sons were incarcerated for murder. And she was at trial every day, right? she stuck by me. she came up on the visit practically every month to see Daryl and I. Uh, and it was, no, it, it was that. It was witnessing that. It was seeing that um, that, that really brought me face to face with the need to ultimately become a responsible adult, right, and to, to break out of this, this, this way of thinking that seemed to dominate my, my teenage years. And for many reasons it dominated my teenage years, you know, I, you know, very much it's a slippery slope, right? You could be a high school student in Brooklyn growing up smoking weed, right? And you have no way of supporting that. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. what do you, you know, what do you do to support your habit? Eventually you start selling weed or you start selling some other drug, you know, and, and then eventually when you involve yourself in drug activity, violence becomes, in the inner city, and in urban areas, violence is very much a part of that in some respects, right? You Even if, and I never considered myself to be a violent person at all, right? I, I was mm-hmm. always even keel, had a, a good temperament. I never, you know, seen myself as a violent person, but, and you could want to avoid it and you could find yourself uh, having to, to to deal with it in some fashion or another. And that very much explains the night, you know, that, that my, that involved the altercation between my brother with my brother and, and and the gentleman that I mentioned. So, yeah, I mean, it's a very slippery slope. It wasn't like, um, it was something like I, uh, Daryl and I just dived right into this, this behavior, you know, it was something that eventually just crept up and and you know seemed to, to take a, a larger role as we grew grew older. You know? So
0: so in your time inside, did your brother share that same desire to want to improve himself as well?
1: Yes, he did. He did. And part of it, you know, we were very much accountability partners. I mean we lucked out with being at the same correctional facility in, in five points, but mm-hmm. we were also um, In the same dorm on Rikers Island, and we we pretty much both agreed that we had to change. We both came to this agreement. We both sat about it, sat beside the bed, you know, in our dorms, and discussed it and prayed about it. And my brother, you know, eventually uh, became a, a chaplain's clerk at Five Points, and he, you know, he was he's very spiritual. He found faith helped guide him through his journey as well as it did with me. And um, my brother came to that uh, agreement with me early on, you know, when we came up. And again, it had, had a lot to do with many people. You know, my brother chaired the youth assistance program from a very young age, probably, probably at about the age of 23. So he was very young and he was running that program at Five Points and He was also, you know, again, heavily invested in the church and Protestant church. And he he found faith as his as his guide early in those early years.
0: And uh, Darnell, I'll ask this question. What did you find faith in?
1: I found faith in the church as well. Uh, My my you know, I I wasn't the great orator that my brother was. (laughs) I I wasn't. I wasn't the preacher, but I attended services every day. And uh, chaplain um, um, Reverend Stewart, who was the chaplain at Five Points Correctional Facility, was very instrumental in my own coming of age and Daryl's coming of age as well. He eventually retired in two thousand and eight, and then another Protestant chaplain took over, Bishop Ronald Dewberry, who also picked up where Reverend Stewart left left off and seen you know um seen uh seen something in my brother and I that they felt you know could could carry over in you know in in some fashion into being good good people on the outside, and they very much helped shape our way of thinking as well, right,
0: yeah, so they so, were so able
1: to, to lean on for advice,
0: yep yeah. So Darnell, let's do a let's do a. We could do a whole podcast on on your on your time <laughs> in, in, inside, but I want to get to how you came out and what happened next. So first of all, give a give a. How long were you in prison?
1: Well, I was in prison for nearly seventeen years. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually, Daryl and I were eligible for parole in twenty sixteen um, due to a, a a bill called the lim, limit eliminate. Uh, new piece of legislation that was signed into law in 2009 called limited credit time allowance under the correction law which allowed us to be eligible for parole release six months earlier than usual so i didn't actually have to uh serve out the full 17 year minimum term i served roughly 16 and a half years before going to the parole board and um Darrell and I went to the parole board on the same day in November of 2016. And then um, there were 18 other inmates who went to the parole board that day. And only Daryl and I uh, were paroled, which was, you know, shows you the likelihood of, of getting out of prison on early on parole in New York State.
0: So you get out and at this point, I'm doing some math here, you're about 36 years old?
1: I was 37 when I was paroled.
0: Okay. And your brother, one year older, is thirty-eight. Yes. Now you're on parole, and where and how? What? Let's go through the steps.
1: Okay. Where did you go
0: to next?
1: <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so um, I ended up. I was going to be paroled to Brooklyn, New York, uh, initially because that's the general rule that you're mm-hmm. paroled to the county where uh, the crime was committed. But in my case. Um, my family, my mother had moved the, moved out of Brooklyn, right? And my brother, my younger brother, John, was uh, a police officer in Brooklyn, and I couldn't be paroled to her residence to his residence um, because he has a firearm in the house, so parole would not allow that, obviously. So uh, my idea, my hope was to go to Ithaca, right? And to um, try and finish my education um, at Cornell, because I had began taking college courses in five points, both through Hobart and William Smith Colleges and through the Cornell Prison Education Program. Okay. And I continued. I wanted to continue with those classes because we were released mid semester. Um, I wanted to continue with those classes on an Ithaca campus through independent study, even though I wasn't going to get a Cornell. Uh, Bachelor's degree through these classes. It was Cornell working together with Cayuga Community College to offer an associate's degree in liberal arts. I still wanted to continue with my education with the professors and instructors uh, from Cornell that I was taking classes with before, uh, shortly after I was paroled. So I, the idea of going to Cornell University, <laughs> you know, seems like a, a quite quite a grand idea. And I, I, you know, for someone who's incarcerated uh, for for so long and who only has a GED, but I had worked in a law library for many, many years. And I had, you know, devoted myself to legal writing. And I met a law professor from Cornell who actually had visited me uh, at Five Points who encouraged me to apply. So um, I really took it seriously at that point that, maybe this is something I should pursue. So eventually how I got to Ithaca to to kind of fast forward, parole initially was gonna send me to Brooklyn. I didn't go to Brooklyn. I just, um, I had no residence there. So I wanted to go to Ithaca. That was not approved initially. And then a judge, a former city court judge um, in Ithaca uh, said, told Parole that he would allow me to stay at his residence uh, for purposes of further, furthering my education. And wow. Ithaca. So when he did that, then Parole was like, okay, if the judge is going to let him stay there, he can come to Ithaca. So I, I lived with uh, the judge, Jim Kerrigan, um, for about two weeks. I ended up finding a job as a paralegal Uh, like the first week that I came home and I ended up finding my own apartment on my west campus on Stewart shortly after. And I also was hired as a research assistant for the Cornell Center for the study of the death penalty worldwide. So I found myself uh, working as a paralegal for a local attorney and also doing work for the uh, death penalty clinic at Cornell Law School, which was a tremendous experience for me to meet so many great uh you know lawyers and faculty from the law school and to get that ex- research experience under my belt that was awesome and then i audited a class um the fall of 2017. now i was also still continuing for the classes i had mentioned that i had started on the inside right uh, through independent study going to goldwin smith or you know and meeting with the professor uh, um, in In his office, and talking about Aristotle for three hours, you know and but, uh, <laughs> and and not uh, you know it's different when you're in a classroom and you don't have to answer every question. Independent study is an entirely different piece, but it was fun right and then I applied to go to Cornell to be a matriculating student at Cornell in this fall of twenty seventeen and
0: so you 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 applied to matriculate the fall of twenty seventeen and yes. We are now recording this in the spring of 2019. <laughs> yeah, where we know from the beginning that you've taken certain classes. Where are we right now in Cornell in your uh, academic climb towards graduation?
1: Well, I'm a first semester senior. I graduate in the spring. I graduate in December. Um, mm-hmm. I'll walk in December. Um, I'm a government major. Um, I plan to take the LSAT in September and Apply for law school at that time um, and it's my dream to you know become an attorney you know and to i think of people like sean Hopwood and dwayne betts who have uh, went from prison to you know go on and obtain a law degree and become practicing lawyers so kind of see them as role models for, for what i want to do
0: I, I want to put a pin in that for one second what is your brother up to
1: My brother, he's a justice and education scholar at Columbia University. He also works for the Fortune Society uh, as a case manager, connecting people who are released from prison to services down in the city area, whether it's through mental health or helping them find housing, something he's passionate about and giving back to people who are are released.
0: Uh, I'm going to ask the question that I know many people have probably asked you along the way. Would you have ever thought that a kid growing up in Brooklyn in the surroundings that you were surrounded by and the incidents that took place in the early part of your life would now be almost uh, less than a year away from graduating from one of the finest institutions in the country?
1: Never, never, (laughs) never, never in my life. And, you know, a professor, professor, Margulies uh, from the law school told me, take in this experience, you know, take in this experience, enjoy it. Don't just go through the process. Take in everything Cornell has to offer, you know, and I've been doing that. I've been trying my best to do that. Between the busyness of my schedule, my son, I I have a beautiful son who was born uh, in in the middle of finals in 2018, May 10th. <laughs> so his birthday had just passed. We just celebrated, had a big birthday party on Saturday. Um, and my family came up from New York City and we celebrated here in Ithaca at Stewart Park, which was great. So between fatherhood work uh, and taking a ton of classes at Cornell, you know, I'm still trying to absorb everything. In, you know, enjoy this part of my life. I remember thinking back when I was 21 and 22 and I'd sit in a cell and think about, you know, how I would never have that opportunity, how, you know, maybe I blew it, right? Like Mm. I would, you know, see (laughs) commencement speakers on television every May talking to students who are graduating college and it would be on a local news and, I would say, wow! I wish one day I could, you know, donate capping gown. Like, would it would it ever be real to me? And you know, I'm living that right now. So I try to pinch myself and remind myself where I was just two, three years ago. You know, not knowing if this opportunity would ever present itself to me, and you know, become a way to. It, it's become a way for me to redeem myself. Right? My yeah. was, like so proud of everything I've done. Like, she she went and. Sent the New York Times article I wrote to all of her friends and, you know, just to see her face when I was released, like waiting at the door for Mm. my brothers, you know, it was a very emotional experience for me, knowing that they'd been there all those years. And to now say, look, I'm making them proud is, you know, priceless.
0: Darnell, I want to thank you for three things, first of all. Um, I want to thank you because your story was so captivating. This is without a doubt the least i 've had to talk on the on this podcast, so I know our <laughs> listeners are ecstatic because they didn 't want to hear a lot from me. I want to thank you for sharing this unbelievable story um that thank is you. yet to be unwritten and I think i I want to thank you personally for just sharing and explaining the level of maturity that you had to go through and what you must have had to deal with all these years, but to also have that sense of appreciation as that professor told you to take it all in. Um, I think our listeners who just heard this will do exactly the same. And uh, I I can't thank you enough for sharing this incredible story and only want to wish you continued success. Um, Thank you. I I don't want to go back and and, and say what you'd wish or whatever it is, because obviously, you know, uh, you've got a family, you've got an education soon to be under your belt and probably many more great things ahead of you. Um, I just want you to continue to tell the story. And call me up so that when you know I want to find you, the it's <laughs> going to make the movie of the YouTube, follow because, up. <laughs> because I'm 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 already in the back of my head saying I got a couple of people we should be talking to. But uh, when that story <laughs> shows up on film, maybe we hang out and we go on the on the red carpet together.
1: How about that? Definitely, <laughs> definitely. You know, Uh there's so much to the to the story that you know I can't really like give everyone in such a short time time span. But you know it, yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's a, it's, a, it's so much to it, to that experience, to that journey. Um, again, it was 17 years, so you yeah. can only imagine. You know. uh, uh,
0: in in reality, it's hard to imagine. And yeah. I think what's even more impressive is how your perspective and the way that you, you look at things and the way that you're going through it. And and I guess, like you said, so few get out of, the correctional system beforehand for parole and be, the, not only the ability to do it, but also to take advantage of it as you have. And um, I hope others are inspired by that story alone, all the way down to young kids in troubled neighborhoods to those yes. that are between, are in prison and have to think about it. And what I, what I share is obviously the community here from the business community of those people in the professional world to the young alumni that are listening to this program as well. Hopefully we'll also gain an appreciation for these great programs that are going on as well and uh, continue to support them because I think they're, they're vital because finding people like you to bring you to light is a pretty awesome experience. So thank Thank you. you again. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Um, Before we leave though, I got to have a little fun with you. If that's okay, okay. with you, because no I think it would be fun. <laughs> and, 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 and I know we've got a, a certain perspective here, but um, are you a fan of the movies?
1: Um, yeah, I am a fan of the movies. I actually just uh, seen Endgame. Which <laughs> <kind> of, <laughs> I was a comic book nerd when I was in, you know, in, a, in the 90s when people read comic books. <laughs> so I, I had to watch Endgame and I watched Game of Thrones, but that technically is, doesn't count as a movie.
0: That's oh, it feels like a movie. I've been I've been watching it every week as well. So I guess I would love to ask you, do you have an all time favorite movie?
1: Um, Million Dollar Baby with Hilary Swank.
0: And why is that your favorite movie?
1: Um. I like Morgan Freeman as an actor and I thought that the acting was great. And I thought the story was very emotional and, um, I don't know. It it just struck me as, you know, her performance, Hillary yeah. Swing's performance in the movie was just amazing. You know, uh, you know, coming from the rural, you know, f- family that she came from and then suffering that, that injury in the ring. And, uh, the the chemistry between her and Morgan Freeman was was great throughout the movie and it was one of my all it's it is my favorite movie of all um, <laughs> believe it or not it's <laughs>
0: I totally believe it. it it's great and I and I want to say I think those were two Oscars that they both got and yeah and, and Clint Eastwood won it for whatever it was I, I may have won best director too so best can,
1: director she yeah. definitely won best actress I yes. remember that.
0: anyway Darnell Epps, uh, thank you for sharing your story and uh, you, continued Appreciate success it. to you. Hey, good good luck on your Spanish final, and oh, uh, <laughs> I have I have the government t- final tomorrow or whatever it might be. And, uh, and obviously, right. and enjoy the last semester there, and uh, make sure uh, you know you, you really do take in everything. I like that bit of advice. All right,
1: thank you.
0: Have a good one. Gotcha. And to all our listeners out there, thank you for listening to Fresh from the Hill. This has been your host, Lou Diamond go big red music from fresh from the hill was written produced and recorded by kia albertson rogers class of 2014 you can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu